Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the revealed truth you've given us to tell us how you, we ought to live our lives. You've given us perfect instruction about every moment on this earth, how we ought to spend it, the things we ought to be focused on, as well as the things that you care about, which are the most important. Because, Lord, you, our eternities are going to be based upon how we choose to live our life, not in terms of our salvation, because that's already been a decided matter, but rather, Lord, um, how the level of authority we have in the coming kingdom, ruling and reigning with you, uh, the responsibilities that we're going to have, that's going to be based upon our obedience. So I thank you, Lord, for giving us good instruction on these matters. Um, among other things, those are all things that I'm grateful for. Now, Lord, I ask that you be with us today as we're going into your word again and looking at what is one of the most controversial subjects of church history. And I ask that you give us wisdom. I also ask that you guide us through that and give us discernment, as I always ask. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning, everybody. This is going to be fun. So we're getting back into our study of the rapture. Just so everybody is clear, we're back into our, we'll call it a sub-study of the subject of eminence. Now, Eminence, just by way of reminder, I'm going to do it every week, is the idea that we have an expectant coming of the Lord that we're looking towards. We know that he is going to come at some point before the tribulational period begins. So we believe he could come any moment from this moment in time until the beginning point of that tribulational period. People disagree with that. One of the main arguments that you're going to hear from people is that, well, obviously the church has to go through the tribulational period because we know Israel has to. And what they usually lump this with is a presupposition that Israel was the church of the Old Testament. You're going to hear this mostly from people who are of the Reformed nature, um, like Reformed theology. Anybody uh, intertwined with covenant theology is going to be believing something similar to this. Um, whether they believe this verbatim or not, they have some variants of this that they that they believe in. So what we're trying to interact with today, and we've been doing this for several weeks at this point, is the idea that the church and Israel are two distinct entities. So the way that we did that, um, the way that we thought would be the best way to interact with this particular issue, was to first look at who Israel is. To do that, we looked at how she began. We looked at um, the covenant nature of her structure, um, just the different things and the different characteristics of Israel. And that was largely how we came to the idea of who Israel is. Then we looked at her past, her present, her future. And we looked at the reasons for her being inside the tribulational period. Because everybody will, pretty much everybody who's read the Bible agrees that Israel is going to be in the trib. What they don't agree on, or maybe they don't even know, is why the nation of Israel is going to be in the trib. Um, because largely that's something that is untaught. Because um, even as Arnold Fruchtenbaum brings up, the most untaught part of theology, again, people disagree with this in general, um, but I think he's right, is the present nature of Israel inside the church today. So Israel's, people know a lot about Israel's future. They know a lot about what happened in the past. They don't know a lot about what Israel's doing now. Um, so in any case... That being completely said, we looked at those things just to see exactly why she has to be in the tribulational period. And we came to the conclusion that a 
portion of the nation of Israel is going to be cut off. They're going to be killed. Um, but through that and through the ministry of the believing people inside the tribulational period, we call them tribulational saints. That's a common term for them. There are going to be Jewish witnesses. There are going to be a lot of people saved. And you're going to have a believing remnant of Israel go through the end of the tribulational period. And it's through those Israelites and those Israelites that are resurrected that the promises of the Abrahamic covenant and the three other unconditional covenants are to be fulfilled. So we, we understood that and we looked into that in detail. I say in detail, that was also a synopsis. Like that was a summary of Israel, like that is beyond a summary that we move very quickly through that material. So that being said, that brings up the next question. Now that we know why Israel's in the trib, we also have to know why the church is not in the tribulational period. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. So I just want to read a couple passages just, just to make a point before we get started. So I'm just going to start actually in Genesis. It says in Genesis, you guys don't need to turn here. I'll, I'll tell you what we're reading. It's just to make a point. So in Genesis chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, it says, On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, Noah's wife, and the three wives of the son with them entered the ark. And they and every beast after his kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. That's kind of interesting. Why are they entering the ark? Well, it says in verse 13 of the prior chapter, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, and you shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. Okay, so sounds like I need to build an ark. It's a good thing I live in the country. Next, if I go to Deuteronomy chapter 20, and I start in verse 10, it says, When you approach a city to fight with it, you shall offer it terms of peace. And if it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. Okay, that's a pretty good rule to live by too. Verse 12, however, if it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. Then the Lord your God gives it into your hand and you shall strike all the men with it with the edge of the sword. Only the woman and children and the animals and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as booty for yourself, and you shall use the spoil of your enemies with the Lord your God has given you. Thus, you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not in the cities of these nations nearby, only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. You shall not leave anything that breathes. But you shall utterly destroy the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. The Lord your God has commanded you. Okay, very interesting instruction. Next, if I were to move to Jonah chapter 3, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation that I am going to tell you. Okay, I have to go to Nineveh too. It says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you receive, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts, or a bag for your journey, or even two coats or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. Okay, so that's a lot, that's a lot of minutiae. But at the end of the day, do I have to go home and build an ark out of gopher wood? No. Do I have to conquer every city that God has given me as my inheritance and kill everybody who doesn't agree to peace and for the people that agree to peace, enslave them and take everything they have? None of those things are relevant to me. Do I have to uh, go to Assyria and tell them God's about to destroy them? Probably not. I mean, you could argue for that one. But in any case, I, I also am not only limiting my ministry and evangelism to the house of Israel. Why? It says here in the Bible that we are to go to the house of Israel. Well, at the end of the day, this is a very, very common thing that has been said in this church many times, but all of the Bible is for us. Not all of the Bible is written specifically to us. That's why I can't take a verse out of Genesis and try to apply it to my daily life about how I'm to live as a believer, because that would be, that would be silly. That would be nonsense. Uh, likewise, I'm not going to take something out of Matthew during a time period where the offer of the kingdom was being extended to the nation of Israel and take this gospel, this good news that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, that it was available. I'm not going to go preach that. I'm actually going to go teach people and tell them, hey, you're looking at an eternity without God. As of right now, you are not going to be spending your eternity with God. Eternity is a long time to be wrong. This is what Jesus did for you to make it so you didn't have to have that eternity. That's, that's what we're doing. We share the gospel. We don't preach the, kingdom, the, the gospel of the kingdom of God to these people. So at the end of the day, we have to figure out exactly which parts of the Bible are specifically for us and which ones are not for us. To do that, we have to understand who we are. We have to understand what has been written to us, right? That, that would make sense to most people. So this is largely one of the issues that people have when they're studying the differences between the church and Israel is they'll say, well, Israel and the church are the same. There's no thing as dispensations. There's no such thing as different time periods. That's just you guys being overly uh, semantic. I forget the word that they usually accuse us of. But in any case, that's largely what they'll say is that we're jumping into the weeds too much. We're reading into the text. At, at the end of the day, we're not doing that at all as a uh, Bible-believing dispensational church. What we're trying to do is we're trying to look for conspicuous markers where God has decreed changes in the way that he's interacting with humanity. How he interacted with the humanity post-flood is different than he did after the flood. How he interacted with people after the flood is different than how he interacted with people after the law was given. And likewise, and this is the most important one relevant to what we're doing, how we interacted with people during the time of the law where humanity, in order to be righteous before a holy God, had to trust in God for their salvation, and then in order to be in fellowship with him, had to take on the entirety of the law and walk according to the law. If you were male, you had to be circumcised. Um, there were a lot of things involved in that in order to become an Israelite. You had to proselytize yourself. How you become a member of the church is simply by believing. You simply just have to trust in what Jesus did for your salvation. Uh, drastically different than all of the hoops you had to jump through to become an Israelite. Now, what's interesting about that is that 
we're not reading anything into that at all. We're looking at what God has said. We, we're looking at the book of Hebrews in context. We're looking at the book of Galatians in context, Romans in context, and we're coming to this conclusion that we are not under law, we are under grace. And so in order for us to understand why that's the case, we need to be looking at the differences between the church and Israel. And through that understanding, we come to the conclusion that we are not going to be in the tribulational period. So that being said, um, how do we come to that conclusion? Well, we've been looking at a few different things. We looked at the fact that even after the birthing of the church, the Israel and the church were never considered synonymous terms. There's one passage that people go to to try to prove that they are synonymous, and even that one is conspicuously not so in the Greek, which would be Galatians 6.16. We're not even going to be getting into today. Um, we looked at the idea that the church is a distinctively new entity. Um, so we looked at how it started and a few other things. We looked at what it was built on. We looked at the fact that it is built through the new covenant at the ratification of that covenant, but it was not originating until after the ascendancy of Christ, after he went to heaven. But what's more is that the church did not even start, as we looked at last week, which until the Holy Spirit was given to her at Pentecost. We actually looked at that in Acts chapter 11, where they said that was the beginning of the church at the moment they were given the Holy Spirit. Now, we looked at the fact that there were a few differences in how things were done at the beginning of the church, because what God was trying to do is he was trying to enforce and validate the authority of the apostles by giving them the authority to join the different people groups together to show that there was no distinction in the church. There, there wasn't a Jewish church. There wasn't a Samaritan church. There was just the church, the body of Christ, joined through what Christ did on the cross, baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit at the point of faith. That one church is what God was building. Because again, God is the one that was building this church. Now, where we left off was in 1 Corinthians. So we're actually going to pick up on this idea of Christ's body. If you would like to turn your Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be jumping back in at. That's where we left off last week. So it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, that there is one body and one spirit, just as you were also called in the hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who, of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Because at the end of the day, like I was saying, there, there is no distinction. There isn't some separation within the church. Um, people have also fallaciously thought, based upon certain verses like this, and looking at the New Testament, that there had to be only one church in every location, that there had to be a Detroit church. Okay, there's already a Detroit church. Don't make another one go to a different city and make a different church. Like, there, there have been people that have taught that. Um, a lot of Anglican churches went that direction, among other ones. But in any case, we don't need to get into that. It says in verse 12, for the, why did he do all this stuff? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. Because that is the purpose. 
That is why. Um, Next, in chapter 5, looking at verse 30 in particular, it says that because we are members of his body, because at the end of the day, and you could, you could look at this in a little bit more detail, and we will in a minute, um, that's the basic structure. What we're looking at is the fact that the church is identified as his body. This is drastically different than what was taught about Israel. Israel was never referred to as this. This is, again, what we're trying to do is we're trying to observe in summary form what the church is, who she is in Christ, and then what we're going to do is we're going to draw an, in, uh, an exceptionally discernible dividing line between the two, because that's what I'm trying to accomplish today. And I think it's easy to do that from Scripture. You can see that by the... I, and this is cherry-picking. This is not all the verses that pertain to the subject. This is just what I decided to put on for the sake of emphasis. Um, if we move to the book of Colossians, just a little bit farther forward, In chapter 1, it says in verse 18 that he, who's he, Christ, is also head of the body in the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And in verse 24, it says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, is filling up of what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And it says in chapter 2, verse 19, we'll actually start in verse 18, it says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Why is it from God? Because God, Christ, is the one that is building this church. And these are some of the points that we're trying to make. I'm actually going to look at verse 20. Well, let's actually move to the book of Hebrews a little bit farther forward again. We don't need to read all of these verses. It says in verse, uh, just know that there are there is more support than we're giving, and I think the support we are giving is sufficient enough. But in chapter 13 of the book of Hebrews, it says in verse 1, Let love of the brethren continue, and do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are 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 also in the body. Because at the end of the day, this is kind of what we're, what we're looking at. Christ being the head who, is, who ought to be controlling the body, who is building the body, and then the body, which are different people of different skill sets, of different gifts that have been distributed by Christ based upon the role they are to be placed in the body, which we're going to be getting into in a little bit. Um, if we jump back to the book of Ephesians, I know this is going to be a lot of jumping. Um, it's, it's for the best at this point in the study. And this one's somewhat important because this was also new revelation. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16, it mentions 
we'll actually start in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier, the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having it put to death, by having put to death the enmity. So what he's done through his cross, through his death on the cross, is he has brought, he's uh, cut down that dividing wall, that barrier that prevented the Gentiles from enjoying the blessings of the covenants. (coughs) Sorry. And he's made it so that they could be equal heirs in Christ in this new body that has been made. Again, very different because the Gentiles were prevented from enjoying the covenant blessings unless they went through, jumped through all the hoops to become proselytized and become a member of the nation of Israel. They didn't immediately become descendants, but they became uh, third-party beneficiaries in that manner. That does not need to happen anymore. You become a third-party beneficiary of the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant through faith in Christ by believing, and which makes you a member of the church. Now, and what we should be looking as an over, I I would say like an overwhelming emphasis as we're looking at all these verses is the fact that it's not giving all of those instructions it gave in the Old Testament for becoming a member of, for a believing member of God's nation. So if Israel were the church, just keep in mind as we're looking here, so. At a very minimum, you have to acknowledge there's been a major change in how one becomes in fellowship with a holy God. At a minimum. But what should be abundantly clear is that we're talking about a completely new, different, um, distinct entity from the nation of Israel. That should be abundantly clear by what we're reading. And if you move to chapter 3, on that same note, starting in... Verse 14, it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in the heaven and on earth derives its name, that he will grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and all that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And so what we're noticing is that this is a mystery. This is something that was completely unrevealed in the Old Testament, that Jews and Gentiles are under equal footing with each other in Christ. In Christ, again, can't emphasize that enough, being a technical term for those in the church. And if you look back to the book of John, chapter 14, um, which we should all be very, very comfortable with that particular chapter at this point. It says in chapter 14, verse uh, 18 through 20, it says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live and you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Again, upper room discourse promising that he is going to be in 
us in the church. This is a promise of the Holy Spirit. And again, those are just some of the basic scripture verses that we would use to support the idea that Jesus is the head of the church and the church is his body. Jesus is building this church and each individual person becomes a member of that body given specific gifts to serve a purpose within that. Next, we, we now kind of have a rough idea of who the church is. So is she promised anything in the future? Are, are there any promises pertaining to the tribulational period that we ought to be aware of? Are we going to be going into it? Are we, should we be stocking up on guns and ammo uh, beyond the reasons we traditionally do that, which for home defense and fun? So in any case, um, should we be expecting to interact with the Antichrist? Should we be looking at any of those things with an air of expectancy? Well, it doesn't actually tell us to do that. It actually tells us something very different. So let's actually go back. I know I already turned the page in my Bible, but let's go to the book of John again, the Gospel of John. Um, we will start in chapter 14. Why did I turn the page? So chapter 14, verse 3. What does God promise? We're going to start in verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. <clears throat> that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Again, that's going to create a very good place for us to understand exactly what he was actually talking about in John chapter 3, verse 16. I'm sure none of you know this verse, so I'm going to read it. Um, we're going to start in verse 14. It says, as Moses, am I in the right chapter? Yep. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him in him, that's important to know too, because what are we? We're in Christ. In him have eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Okay, so that's our one condition for having eternal life. As it says in the prior verse, that's our one condition for being in Christ. Next, for God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And so that's largely the point that I would try to make there, which is that that is the one condition to become a member of this church. And that's super important because what is he actually saying there in that last verse? He's saying what would happen if you were to not become a member of the church. And it's not just becoming a member of a local church. Obviously, it's, it's far more basic than that. It's about whoever believes, whoever trusts in him will do what? They'll have eternal life. But more specifically, this is motivation for every single person in this room who's already believed. He who does not believe has been judged already. They already have a judgment looming over them. It's the common saying that if you're a Christian, if you're a blood-bought saint who has believed in Jesus, 
your life is as bad as it's ever going to get. And if you are a non-bloodbought saint with that judgment looming over you, your life is as good as it's ever going to be getting for you. And it's, I, I say that not as like a, a bragging right. It's, it's really sad. And that should be a motivating uh, condition for us to, to share the gospel. But in any case, moving forward in verse 36, it says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Well, is it now saying I need to obey the Son? I need to be obedient? Or is it saying obey the Son and what he has already said, which is that we need to believe in order to be justified before a holy God? It says, if we move forward into chapter 5 of the same book, um, we're going to be reading verse 24, where it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, but does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Because, and you could go into detail on this idea of passing out of death into life, but just know that the way that it's worded in the Greek um, emphasizes the permanence of that passing. It's not something that can be undone. It is a trend to you quote Joe Biden and say transitory statement of where you were and where you are now. This is the, it's very, very settled. When you believe in Christ, that is your place. You are in Christ. You're in his body, which you're going to be reading in the book of Ephesians guarantees you certain things in your identity in Christ. We're actually going to move in the same book to chapter 10 starting in verse 22. It says, chapter 10, verse 22, At that time the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. And the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The words that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I will give them, I will give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Again, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Again, emphasizing the permanence of the statement. It says in verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. And so that's kind of the point that I'm trying to emphasize here, which is, again, once you are in Christ, this is promising you an exemption from future judgment. The reason for that is because you are now part <coughs> part of that body. And again, that's not something that's going to change. We can move to the book of Acts next, starting in chapter 16. And we're going to be looking at verse 30, going into 31. It says, And after this, he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Again, One condition, one condition for being saved from eternal wrath, the eternal wrath of God, because Jesus already paid that penalty for the Christian. 
and the un- unbeliever, but the one condition of finding retribution and reconciliation with a father, a holy God, when you are not holy, is this trust, is in this belief in Jesus. And then the efficacy of his sacrifice is then applied to the believer, the new believer. Because again, you could get into the weeds. Um, yeah, you could get into a lot of Calvinistic things too there, but that's the one condition that is conspicuous in the word, which is that we trust, that we believe in him. Not just believing he exists, but rather believing in who he said he was, his sacrifice on the cross, and the efficacy of that sacrifice for our sins. There's no sin that his blood cannot cover. So, moving on to the book of Romans, which is a fitting note to put a bow on that, which would be chapter 8, starting in verse 37. It says, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, nothing can separate. Nothing at all. So let's move to the book of Philippians. Right after the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. It says in verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Again, he is the one that is keeping us in the Father. It is Jesus keeping us saved. It is the Father, like people call it the double grip of grace, um, because it is both Jesus and the Father. It is Jesus' sacrifice that is covering our sins. So there's, it sounds bad and people get upset about it, but there's nothing I could do to get separated from that. I can separate myself from fellowship with the Lord. It's fairly easy to do, just sin. Um, but I can also get reunited with the Lord by confession of that sin. John, First John 1, 9. So it says, moving to, going back a little bit to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, It says in verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, and indulgences and desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith again. It is by his grace that that was even offered to us, but we were saved through faith. And not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may may boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So again, what are we actually promised here? We're promised that we are saved through faith. We're promised that he is going to be the one that is keeping us saved. But we're also promised that we are going to have eternity with him as a result of that initial faith by his grace through faith. But what we're also promised is that we're saved, that last verse, so that we would walk in the good things he has prepared for us. Because again, if his goal were just to save us, he would just do an individual rapture on every single person who ever got saved and bring them to be in uh, the presence of the Lord. That's not his, it's not his purpose, though. Um, that is the ultimate fruition of his purpose, which was saving us. But at the end of the day, there's still the rest of our lives. Next, um, on the same note of what we can be promised in the future, because at a minimum, we're promised what? Eternal life through faith. Or, yeah, in any case. Uh, but we're also promised a few other things. And this is something that... Uh, especially people in the pre-wrath group, in the post-trib group, will will say as if we if we never admit this. Um, when we say we're not going to be in the tribulational period, what are we not saying? We're not. I mean, there are a hundred things we're not saying, but um, the main thing we're not saying is that we're never going to see trials. We're never going to see tribulation. We like some people refer to it as a like little t tribulations that we we will see. And the big T is what we don't see. But in any case, um, that's just something to keep in mind is that a lot of people will assume that what we're really saying is that we will never see trials and persecution. They look at it as escapism, like we never have to go through anything. And part of the problem is there have been people who have taught that. Um, because whenever you're researching things, you have to figure out exactly why people came to that conclusion in order to argue against it. Uh, there were people that taught that Christians were, were going to be raptured, so we're never going to have to go through persecution. Again, a simple look at not even church history as a whole, which has been largely almost 2,000 years, just the little bit of church history we get a viewpoint of in the book of Acts. That is obviously fallacious, and nobody who has read more than a chapter in the Bible uh, believes that at this point in history. But that's the argument that is levied against the pre-tribulational rapture group. Because again, um, if we have verses that say specifically that we're going to be exempted from the wrath of God, that we're, we're going to be getting into probably not today now. Um, but if that's a promise that we've been given, then we have to be looking at really what is our goal now? Well, if you look anywhere around in the world, and I actually got a Twitter again, which is not a great idea. I don't recommend it. Just so I could follow the updates from uh, the Voice of Martyrs. And we are in a very, very, very small bubble of a uh, blessing, we'll call it that, um, unmerited blessing in the United States, where we don't have to go through a lot of the daily persecutions, a Christian, and even Russia, I mean, you could go to Ukraine, uh, you could go to Israel, and you would have different persecutions than you would have here pretty much any other country. I mean, we talked about Canada recently. Everybody's forgotten about Canada because of <laughs> Russia and Ukraine. But even in Canada, you don't have the same freedom that you do here. You can be jailed for talking about a lot of things in your sermon podcasts. I mean, these are things that are happening around the world. You could be killed for your faith in a lot of places around the world. There are a lot of people who are every day. 
So that being said, we don't believe that the church is exempt from trials and persecution. And obviously, we're only going to read a few of these verses now because we're almost out of time. Um, but we're promised from a specific form of trouble, this time of Jacob's trouble, this promise of a future seven-year tribulational period um, that we're going to be getting into probably next week at this point. So let's look at a few verses that would support the idea that um, the church is not promised an exemption from trials and persecution. So it says, if we look at the book of John, chapter 15, we're going to be reading verse 20, which is that, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Because again, he's not saying you might face persecution. He's saying you will. Now, the persecution we face in the U.S. may be, we might not be burned at the stake or any of the other things that are still sadly happening around the world today to Christians. Um, but that could also change. So, I mean, just keep in mind, we are, we're in a very unique bubble. In, in a very, U.S. has not existed very long. Um, so it's not to say that this bubble is permanent, which is what a lot of people assume. So uh, we will actually move on to the book of Romans. And people often focus on the, on the glorification uh, attributes of the book of Romans in chapter 8, but they miss the point that a lot of this is talking about trials that the believers are going to be going into. So in uh, verse 18... It says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the re revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, for in hope we have been saved, but in hope that is not seen, I'm sorry, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he has already sees? for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. So, <coughs> sorry. We'll move to the book of Philippians chapter one, and this is where we're going to close today. It says in chapter 1, towards the end of the chapter in verse 29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So, and we're going to be emphasizing this point a lot more next week, especially going into the differences and the distinctions between the church and Israel. Um. But we are promised persecution. We're, pro we're promised trials. Again, what we have right now is pretty unique. Um, so we don't in any substance or capacity believe that Christians are exempted from any of those things. We live in a fallen world. 
There are really bad things that happen every single day because of the fact that we live in a far, fallen world. Um, we're sheltered from a lot of those things in this country, but a brief look outside of the country and you realize that we are not the norm at all. And there are Christians that ought to be prayed for every day because of what they're going through. So that being said, we don't believe just because we think there's going to be a pre-tribulational rapture and that rapture is intimate, that we're going to be out of harm's way for the troubles that would accompany being in a fallen world. And we're going to read a few more verses on that next week, but just, just kind of keep in mind um, when people, and I say when, because I've already had this argument brought up to me by a couple people. When we say we are not going to be in the tribulational period, maybe our wording is a little imprecise by calling it the tribulational period. Because for the most part, it is the time of Jacob's trouble, the seven-year time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, the seven-year, again, we're going to be getting into the time periods of the nation of Israel next week. But the one thing that I want to emphasize is we are not exempt from wrath in this world. Man's wrath, Satan's wrath, the wrath of our sin nature. I mean, we have a lot of things that would argue against this, that would fight against this in this world, but that doesn't mean that we aren't also going to spend an eternity with the Lord. And it's the fact that we know that we have that eternity. We know, John 10, that we cannot be taken out of the Father's hand, that that is a guaranteed future for us that pulls us through the trials of life. Those are the words that Christians hang on when, when they are facing far worse persecution than we've ever encountered. So just keep that in mind as we're going through this. Um, we'll emphasize that a little bit more next week, but that's just something to keep in mind. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the promises that you made us. We thank you for the promise of your son, which you gave all humanity, the fact that you brought him, the fact that you died on the cross for humanity that did not deserve you, the fact that you died in our place as our substitution, and the fact that you have made a sacrifice that is big enough for every single person who has ever lived and will ever live. And we thank you also that to become eligible for this, it is something as simple as just trusting in you and believing in God for that salvation. We thank you for this, and we thank you that the bar was that, the bar was that low. Um, it's something that I'm grateful for. And we also thank you that once we are saved, that you have also given us the directive to walk in the Spirit, to do things through means of the Spirit, so that we can shed off the old man and take the new man. We thank you for these things. We thank you for also enabling us to do that through the power of the Holy Spirit as we move forward in our lives. We thank you for the promise that we will be going through for tribulation, um, that we would learn that your we would learn of your provision through those trials that we go through. But also, Lord, we thank you for the promise that we will not have to go through the time of Jacob's trouble. We thank you for this, and we ask that you be with us in the service to come. In Jesus' name, amen.